Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, I think I've managed to meet everybody by now, but if I haven't, I'm Kath, and hopefully I'll just get a chance to grab you at the end and say hello. We are diving straight in this morning. Um, we are, as Jamie said, kicking off a new teaching series, a mini little three-weeker, looking together at the book of Colossians. Um, if you weren't here last week, we sort of teed up what we're doing this week and for the next few weeks um, with a talk last week about how to read the Bible well, um, which sounds dry, and it probably was in parts, um, but if you did miss that, it's probably worth a listen on our podcast just to give you some of the tools that we're going to be using a bit over the next few, um, few weeks. Um, but equally, hopefully today will stand as a sort of a bit of a standalone, so if you did miss last week, don't worry, hopefully um, you'll be able to follow what we're doing today anyway. Um, we've already had some chat about the workbooks this morning <laughs> from Jamie, Stolen My Thunder. Um, it really divided people way more than I thought the workbook would. Um, confession from Kath, I'm uh, a school nerd, um, teacher's pet. Anything with the word workbook on it is just talking my language. <laughs> I am loving life right now. Head girl, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> any other head girls in the room? Alex was head girl. There we go. Oh, yeah, here we go. Um, but you're guaranteed when you put something with the word workbook on it, it's going to flush out the teacher's pets among us. So if you're a teacher's pet, I'm with you. You're a friend of mine. Um, equally, it will flush out those of you that who are like, are they serious? Are they like giving me homework at church? Because if they are, that is not cool and I'm not coming back. Um, if that is you, fear not. Just want to put your mind at rest. Despite the word work in this, this is not homework. Um, this is something that just hopefully will be helpful to you. If you're the kind of person that um, when you're listening to something, it's much more helpful for you to write as you listen. Our hope is that this will just be a good tool for you over the next few weeks. Because we're going to read some quite long, sort of lengthy chunks of um, this letter together. And if you're anything like me, actually just listening is quite a hard way to sort of focus with that. So the hope is um, you'll find that you've got the sort of text for each week that we're going to be going through in here. But then there's also space for notes for you to jot down any questions that might occur to you, you could even jot down prayers. Some of you arty ones among you can even draw if you find that helpful. So just use that as much as it's helpful to you. If not, leave it here. Um, not going to lie, we've done a short run of them. So prize for anyone that brings theirs back last week. Free coffee and donut for you. Um, it's a joke. It's not a good one. There's free donuts and coffee for everybody next week. Hurrah. Um, so anyway... Um, shall we turn in our booklets, if you would like to, to chapter one? Um, but before we launch in, in light of some of what we talked about last week, let me just give you a brief bit of context for the book of Colossians. So first thing to say, Jamie's already touched on this, the book of Colossians is actually a letter. Um, that should sort of become apparent as we read it. Um, it's one of several letters written by the Apostle Paul to a number of sort of different early church communities that sprung up in the years following Jesus's resurrection and his ascension. And for those among you who love dates and like to get really specific about this stuff, scholars think that Paul most probably wrote this letter from prison in a place called Ephesus, perhaps with a colleague of his called Timothy acting as his scribe. Um, and they think that was probably happening in around AD 62. So for those that like dates, get that, those facts down. Other interesting thing about Colossians, normally when Paul writes a letter, he writes to a church that he himself has planted or he himself has started. But scholars reckon that this particular church community in Colossae was actually most likely founded by a guy called Epaphras, who Paul had recently spent time with. Again, they think probably they'd spent time together in prison. 
Um, Colossae, for those among you who are thinking, I'm a geographer, but I have never heard of Colossae. Um, it doesn't exist anymore as a city. It did exist then. This is not fantasy. Um, but it doesn't exist anymore as a city. But it was situated in what we would sort of call modern-day Turkey, if that helps you to place where it is. Anyway, most likely, sort of background to the letter is that Epaphras has spent some time with Paul in prison, and they've talked together about what's going well in the church in Colossae, and also what are some of the challenges that they are facing as a church. And so Paul's written this letter in response to do a number of things. Firstly, to affirm Epaphras' leadership, to give his backing to Epaphras. Secondly, to sort of praise and encourage the church community. And then thirdly, to sort of speak in to some of the challenging situations that they are facing. Um, now, I don't want to spend too long this morning talking about the particular challenges um, that the Colossians were facing. Jamie's going to spend some time on that next week. But sort of by way of a big sweeping overarching summary for you, Paul's central message to the Colossians is this idea um, that in having Jesus, the Colossians have everything that they need. That's his sort of central message. In having Jesus, they have everything that they need. They don't need to jump through a bunch of other religious hoops in order to belong to the church community, and nor do they need anything else other than Jesus to enable them to live distinctively in the city of Colossae. They just need Jesus. So that's kind of zoomed out, big picture, what's going on in the book of Colossians. So without further ado, let's dive in, and we're going to read chapter 1 together. So from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. There is one thing I want us to notice about Paul's greeting to this letter that's really important before we continue. Paul refers to the Colossians as being both in Colossae and in Christ. Now, we just sort of skim over that in a bit of a sentence, but if you were to read the original Greek language, it's set up like a parallel, so that it's supposed to come as a pair. They're in Colossae, and they're in Christ. And as you go on to read the rest of the letter, you realize that those two phrases are really important for understanding the rest of the content of the letter as a whole, because what Paul is concerned with in writing this letter is that the Colossian church learned to live lives worthy of the Lord. We'll hear him go on to say that in a minute. He wants them to live lives worthy of the Lord as they live in the light of both of those realities. So I'll explain what I mean. He wants them to neither be totally swamped by the surrounding culture in Colossae, and instead he wants them to firmly find their identity in Christ. But at the same time, he doesn't want them to ignore the time and place that God has positioned them. And instead, he wants them to work out how to follow Jesus in concrete ways as they live out their lives in Colossae. So it's really important in Christ and in Colossae. And with that in mind, we sort of begin to see this framework that's on the screen emerge sort of across the letter. So chapter one is all about Jesus. As we go on to read, someone else is going to read so I can sit down for a minute. You will see that it is Jesus, 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 just all over the first chapter. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And as such, it really homes in on this idea of the Colossians having everything they could possibly need in Christ. I'll stop doing the bunny ears at some point, but for now, we're doing bunny ears in Christ. Chapter two begins then to focus on this church community's particular challenges. And as I said, Jamie's going to unpack some of the particular challenges in Colossae next week. And then chapters three move to bring those two realities, uh, sorry, three and four move to bring those two realities together and explore how this community can live well 
in Christ, in Colossae, in their day-to-day lives, and particularly in their relationships. So, as we move through chapter 1 today, we're going to see how Paul begins to flesh out something of what it means for the Colossians to be in Christ. Now, if you've read any of other Paul's, any other um, Paul's letters before, that phrase, in Christ, might ring some bells for you. Paul actually uses it over 80 times in his letters in the New Testament, and he uses it 12 times in this letter alone. So it was a really big deal, this phrase, in, in Christ, for Paul. And for him, I think the phrase has like a twofold meaning. Firstly, it describes the way a follower of Jesus is someone whose primary sense of identity, security, and belonging is now found in Jesus and in their relationship to him, rather than in anything or anyone else. And I actually think if you've heard people talk about, you know, I really just need to find my identity in Christ, that's often the kind of um, understanding that people have of this phrase, in Christ. And it does mean that. Paul absolutely uses it in that way. But secondly, and I think kind of more significantly for Paul, being in Christ is not just a question of identity. It also has something to do with like an active, dynamic participation in the very life and ways of Jesus. So as we move through this chapter together, I want us to home in on four features in particular of this active dynamic of being in Christ that I think come through in Paul's writing. So let's continue reading at verse 3. I'm not going to get someone else to read it because I want to tell you to underline some things as we go. Okay, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. If you've got a pen, underline faith, love, and hope. We're going to come back to that in a second. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Underline great endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now as we start from verse 15, we're getting into what many scholars think is actually a hymn about Jesus. So it's quite poetic, you'll notice that as we go. Um, I'll spare you me singing it. Um, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, underline all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Underline reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled, underline reconciled again, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope, underline hope, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, (coughs) have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, underline fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, and underline this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Okay, marathon reading. But first things first, glaringly obvious thing um, to point out. How many times does Paul want to use the phrase all things in that passage? A number of times. Hopefully you've got them underlined in your thing. That is because for Paul, if you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ in his life, all things are yours too. You have access to everything you possibly need. Um, And this is the point I was making before. Paul's big message to the Colossians is when you have Jesus, you have all things. Everything you could possibly need full stop. And this is the first active dynamic, if you like, in the life of those who follow Jesus who are or who are in Christ, as Paul puts it. People who are in Christ for Paul are people of plenty in a world of scarcity. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a person of plenty. Who hated that? <laughs> Good. We're just flushing out some more people that don't enjoy these things. Oh, I promise I won't do that too much. Maybe a little bit. Um, People who are in Christ are people of plenty in a world of scarcity. So to zoom out from Colossians for a moment and look at ourselves, you know, what a calling for us as a church in our day to be people of plenty in a world of scarcity. Jamie, I think, touched on this brilliantly a few weeks ago when he talked about generosity. This idea that our Western culture and even our sort of economy is built on this lie that there is never enough, that we're never going to have quite enough. Like advertising runs off this like insatiable desire in us for more, this feeling that we never have quite enough. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to face that lie head on and live generous lives, secure in the knowledge that all things are ours in Christ. I'd love to say more on this, but I really want us to keep us moving. But that is the first active dynamic in the life of someone who follows Jesus or who is in Christ, to be a person of plenty in a world of scarcity. Second dynamic, I want to spend a bit more time on this, is um, for someone who is in Christ, the second dynamic is that they are people of hope in a world of despair. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a person of hope. (laughs) 
very good. Um, I actually wrote this talk from the library at Liverpool Hope University. Shout out to any Hope students. Do you know what your university motto is? Oh, come on, guys, I will tell you. Um, your university motto is in faith, hope, and love. It's lovely, absolutely, makes you want to go to the university. Um, turn with me to look at verse 5 again, which we underline. Paul loves this little trio of faith, hope, and love. It pops up again and again in his letters. Um, because for Paul, these are the marks of character of someone who is in Christ. They are people of faith, hope, and love. But here in Colossians 1, Paul actually goes a step further, and he says that actually faith and love are only made possible by having hope, first of all. They, faith and love spring up from hope. Now, to understand this properly, we need to get that in Paul's day, their understanding of hope was a little bit different from ours. So when we use the word hope, we mainly use it to express desire for something that is uncertain. Um, so someone asks us, do you think you're going to pass that exam? We sort of say, oh, I hope so. You know, someone asks me at the moment, Kath, do you think you're going to cope okay in childbirth? And I'm like, I really, really hope so, betraying a little bit of uncertainty around it. Um, you know, we talk about daring to hope for things, or we talk about hopes being disappointed. You get this picture, get the picture, sort of hope for us has this relationship with uncertainty. But this is not hope as the New Testament writers understand it. The author of the letter to the Hebrews writes about the hope we have in Jesus being like an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And it's the same for Paul. Hope for Paul is tied to two things that are absolutely certain and absolutely secure. The first we've just read about in verse 5, the hope stored up in heaven. That's the first thing that is absolutely certain and secure in Paul's mind. And let's just remind ourselves again, we've done this a bit over the past few weeks, but when the New Testament writers talk about heaven, they are not talking about a place in the clouds where one day our souls will float off from our bodies when we die and we'll sit around eating Philadelphia, singing endless rounds of tedious worship songs and drinking Red Bull. That is not a biblical picture of heaven. And thank goodness. Do you know what? As a kid, that was my picture of heaven. And I used to just think, that just sounds so boring. I, I honestly, the thought of being there for eternity sounds awful. I, I, I think I prefer the other place. Um, so, but truthfully, that, that heaven would be boring, but that is not the biblical picture of heaven. That's an idea that comes from Greek philosophy. The New Testament writers, including Paul, assure us that our future is an embodied one, where this world matters. And rather than God washing his hands of this earth and zapping us off to the clouds, the picture we are given is of heaven invading earth, of Jesus coming to restore everything broken to how it was always meant to be. And we're promised that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He'll heal every hurt. There'll be no more death or crying or pain. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the hope of heaven, a certain hope about a certain embodied future. But this isn't the only thing that hope is tied to for Paul, because for Paul, that future has already begun in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So it's hope for now, too. I want you to look again at verse 24 for a moment. 
Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, Paul says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, And the you is plural here, by the way. He's not speaking to an individual. He's speaking to the church. Christ in you, church, the hope of glory. For Paul, hope is not just tied to the moment when Jesus will return and make all things new. It's tied to Jesus with us, and not only Jesus with us, but in us, in the here and now, in the church as well. And not just so that he can be like our companion in the difficulties of this life, although he absolutely is, and what a comfort that is, but also so that in us and through us as a church, the life of that certain future can begin to break in now as a foretaste of that heaven to come. Now, it is no secret we are living in turbulent times, um, globally, absolutely, but even just nationally on our doorstep in the UK, what a mess the last few years have been. It's been pretty full on. Um, And there are many, many people who are despairing at the state of our nation at the moment. But we are called, as his church, to be a people of hope, a, a, a rooted and certain hope in the face of that despair. Jamie mentioned earlier, many of you will heard us use this language when we talked about our vision as a church. We talk about wanting to grow a community here that acts as a sign of hope to the city. Um, And actually, we felt God give us that phrase about being a sign of hope the very first weekend that we moved, Jamie and I, to Liverpool. Um, But what was amazing was a few months after um, arriving in Liverpool, my mum came to visit. And for some reason, I'd sort of sent her off on her own to do some of the livable tourism. Very bad hosting from me. Um, but uh, I got a photograph from her sort of halfway through the morning. This is the photograph that's coming up. Should be in a second. The one that looks a bit like a statue. If you have any joy, don't worry, chaps. If not, I'll read it. Um, she sent me this photograph, and it was taken from a statue on Hope Street, literally just around the corner from here. Um, And it's a statue, if you've seen it, of two bishops, David Shepherd and Derek Warlock. One was Anglican, one was Catholic. I can't remember which way round it is. But they were two amazing sort of champions of this city, and they did a lot to sort of heal religious divisions in the 70s and the 80s here. But anyway, on the side of this statue, there is this quote from Derek Warlock describing what he believed the mission of the church was. And he wrote this. He was writing this in the, I I think it was in the 70s he wrote this. To close the gap between religion and life, between what goes on in church and what goes on at work and at home, to make our faith a living reality that can be a sign of hope to people in rather troubled times, and at the same time to secure justice and human dignity in the ordinary affairs of life. Um, And when my mum showed that to us, um, Jamie and I were speechless because we kind of realized we'd felt God give us this word for what he wanted us to be as a little church community in the city, a sign of hope to the city. Um, but when we saw that photo, we realized, oh, hang on, God's story in Liverpool is much bigger than us. And it's been going on for much longer um, before we even arrived and will no doubt continue long after we are gone. That is the story that he is wanting to speak through his church over Liverpool. He wants the church to be a sign of hope in this city. But what a privilege we have in our own way as a community to join in that story in our time, to be people of hope in a world of despair. Now, I want to say an important caveat at this moment. 
For some in the room this morning, you might hear all of that and think, well, that's all very well, but I've tried putting my hope in Jesus and it's not got me particularly far. I've really tried to put my hope in Jesus, but I've wound up really disappointed. No, maybe you've experienced grief or pain or loss and hurt of some kind, and you're left thinking, Jesus has utterly let me down. So what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to be a person of hope in light of that? Um, and that's a really important question. And the first thing to say is, first of all, you're in really good company. You won't be the only one in this room um, thinking that or asking that question. I've certainly asked it at different points in my life. Um, but also, Paul is not a stranger to this. We've just read him talking about his own suffering. Remember the guy is writing this letter from a prison cell, which I imagine isn't the sort of most cushy of environments for him. Um, but this leads to kind of the third dynamic that I think Paul points out um, that belongs to someone who is in Christ. Because for Paul, those who are in Christ are not just people of hope in a world of despair, but they're also people of tension in a world that really hates tension. Um, so we're just going to read from verse 9 together again. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that, and here's the bit I want us to pay attention to, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now Paul has this horrible habit, which I also have, of writing really long sentences. <laughs> Sometimes they just go on and on, and you're like, full stop, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Um, but so let me just try and draw out some of the tension from that really long sentence that he's talking about. Paul is basically saying this. On the one hand, he's saying to the Colossians, you've already um, been rescued by Jesus and all things are yours in Christ. We've talked about that. But on the other hand, his prayer for them is that they will be strengthened with power so that they might have great endurance and patience, which begs the question, what do the Colossians need endurance and patience for if it's true that they already have everything in Jesus? What do they need endurance and patience for if they've got everything they need already? Well, I think the clue comes in the language Paul then goes on to use about the kingdom. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is language that doesn't actually appear loads in Paul's letters, although it absolutely underpins a lot of what he writes about. Um, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is something that Jesus himself did not stop banging on about. It formed like the bulk of what Jesus taught about. Um, and this really is a talk for another day, um, but I want to just unpack this really briefly. We use this language within the Vineyard Family Churches about how we live in the tension of the now and the not yet of the Kingdom of God. Some of you will be familiar with that language, the now and the not yet of the Kingdom of God. If that's new language to you, let me try and explain what I mean by that. When Jesus arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago, he brought with him a new kingdom, the Kingdom of Heaven. And we get to experience that kingdom now because Jesus has come. 
And when I say kingdom of heaven, remember what we've just talked about, that certain future where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So when the kingdom breaks in, in the here and now, it's like a foretaste of that certain future where sick people are healed, broken-hearted people are made whole again, even the dead are raised, which is why when Jesus went around healing people from sickness and disease, he would do things like talk about, say things like, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you when he heals them. And we absolutely believe this is the same dynamic today. To take healing, to continue using that physical healing as an example. When we pray for someone who is sick today and we see them healed, we believe that that is a foretaste of that future kingdom when there will be no more sickness. But at the same time, we believe that the rule of that kingdom won't be made complete until Jesus comes again to make all things new. So whilst we experience the kingdom in part, we don't yet experience it in full. So it's both now and it's not yet. Which is why on the one hand, Jesus would go around saying things like, the time is now, the kingdom of God has come near. And on the other hand, he would teach his disciples to pray and to petition the Father, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's why he did both. And it's also why if we continue with this example of healing, if we pray for someone who is sick, if we pray for them to be healed and they aren't healed, we don't then rush to say things like, well, maybe they just didn't have enough faith. And nor do we rush to say, you know, well, maybe it was in God's plan for them to be sick. Because when we do that, what we're, do we're doing what the world around us loves to do, which is to resolve the tension. We hate the disease of the tension, and so we run to resolve the tension with these sort of pat and easy answers. All to say, to be in Christ is to be a person of tension. I won't make you say that to your neighbor. Um, <laughs> um, and at times, we get to experience the joy of the kingdom breaking in in the here and now. And as a church, you know, we want to be people who go after seeing that in the here and now, passionately about that. But at the same time, we recognize that we feel the pain of the tension as well. You know, it is really hard to live in the tension when someone you love dies, even though you've been praying for their healing. It is really hard to live in that tension when a war breaks out, even when we've been praying for peace. But Paul's challenge and his prayer for the Colossians, and I think by extension for us, is to be people who are brave enough to hold our nerve, people who are brave enough to refuse easy answers, and people who are brave enough to live in that tension, who will endure and have patience even in the worst of times, Refusing to resolve that tension by saying God can't be good or he can't be powerful or by reaching for easy answers and to be those for who, who um, as Paul puts it, don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. So that's uh, the third dynamic of someone, people of tension in a world that hates tension. And one final dynamic, I think, of what it means to be in Christ is to be people of reconciliation in a world of division. We're going to go on to explore this dynamic a bit further in a couple of weeks' time when we look at chapters 3 and 4. But in this first chapter about Jesus, it's worth noting that Paul repeat, repeats this phrase about God in Jesus reconciling all things to himself. Because for Paul, this is at the very heart of what it means to be in Christ. It means to be one who has been reconciled fully and completely to God. Do you believe that this morning, that nothing stands between you and God. 
This is how Paul writes about it in his letter to the church in Rome. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing stands between you and God this morning. You have been reconciled to him. But there's also an active dynamic to this reconciliation too. You know, as we share in the life of Jesus, we aren't just those who have been reconciled. We are also called to become agents of reconciliation in the world. Paul writes this in one of his other letters to a church at Corinth. He writes, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The call for a follower of Jesus, the call for someone who is in Christ, is to be someone who is in the business of reconciling other people to God as we introduce them to the person of Jesus. And as we do so, we're also able to be in the business of reconciling people to one another as well. You know, again, the sort of crazy times we live in, we live in times of real division, don't we, at the moment. Um, and as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, the Colossians did too. Jamie's going to unpack some more of that. But to be in Christ is to be an agent of reconciliation, to refuse to buy into any sort of tribalism or to refuse to sort of throw mud at people who have different political views or religious views or even just cultural views. Um, and instead to be those who bring people together. So I want us to come into land there. That is an extremely whistle-stop tour of chapter one of Colossians, um, answering this sort of question, what does it mean for us to be in Christ? And to summarize then, amongst other things, it means this, to be people of plenty in a world of scarcity, people of hope in a world of despair, people of tension in a world that hates tension, and people of reconciliation in a world of division.